Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I am the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today, alongside our guest, Eric Barreto, we suit up and get super for the end of an era. It is the final movie in this arc of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We are talking Avengers Endgame. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam and our guest, Eric, how we can possibly use this movie to think about life and ministry, theology, and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with the Avengers Endgame for this coming Sunday, which will be the third week of Easter, year C, May 5th. And in our third segment, Postludes. We'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. Well, before we get too far, let me reintroduce friend of the show, Eric Barreto. Eric is professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary and the author of a number of books on the New Testament. In past episodes, he has talked with us about Christmas movies and about Mad Max Fury Road. Eric, it is great to have you back with us. It's great to be with you all, and you gave me an excuse to watch this movie and make it feel like I was doing some work. Thank you. Yeah, and also, <laughs> and also with us, Eric, and also with us. <laughs> yeah, Eric, I've just re- I just realized that um, that we only ask you to come back when the movie title has a colon in it. So we appreciate that. Hey, anytime I can be a colon expert. Yeah. So do I really have to, like, introduce this movie? I mean, we are 22 movies into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Avengers Endgame, we are recording Monday morning. This thing dropped Thursday night. It has made $1.2 billion in the weekend box office. Let's just stop and think about that for a minute. Yeah, 15 of those were mine. Uh, This is the last chapter in this part of a franchise that spans back to the original Iron Man in 2008. I don't know that anybody would have predicted the size of the franchise that now presents itself to us. But before I get too far into that, let me just say that we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie in this conversation. If you have not yet seen it, turn back now. You have been warned. This is your last warning, really and truly. All right. So Avengers Endgame finds our heroes trying to put the world back together after the events of Infinity War, in which the evil alien warlord Thanos assembled all the Infinity Stones and snapped half of the universe out of existence. We also then jump five years into the future, so we get to see the effects of this trauma playing out, particularly amongst our heroes themselves. This is a movie that starts with lots of grief. And then, of course, it becomes a heist film as our heroes realize they can jump through time into basically previous moments of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in order to recollect the Infinity Stones. And then, of course, at the end, there's one more giant battle. Every character you've ever seen in the MCU on screen at once, and I'm sure we'll get to the outcome of that. But first, I just want to hear your general impressions. Eric and Adam, this was... 
This was supposed to be a big final paragraph in this chapter of the MCU. Did it work? Did it do its job? Was it was it satisfying? Somehow, I, I was worried about the three-hour movie length, but I was just kind of delighted the whole time I came in with high expectations, and they were largely met. And I think what I was reflecting on thinking about this is when I was a kid riding my bike to the comic book store, it always felt like I was the only kid reading comic books my age. You know, I had a cousin who read them, but nobody else. So to sit in this theater and hear all the tears and the sobs and the cries of exclamation from all these nerds, it was just really, um, yeah, it was a really satisfying experience. I, I Similarly, Eric, I, I think it's hard for me to divorce this movie, the story itself and all of the characters that I've, I've grown up with from the experience that I've had both with comics and with movies. Right. So I, I, I was genuinely satisfied, but I wonder how much the environment had to do with it. It, it was, it felt like an event. It felt like Mm -hmm. I was sitting in a movie theater likewise with a whole bunch of people who were nerds like me who cared about this and whose this story had some, if not this story in particular, these characters and the idea of comic books and um, and superheroes had an effect on my identity at a young informative age. And so the movie that I saw was seen in a theater that was totally packed. It was a super diverse theater. I mean, it was there were old people, there were young people. It was a, it was uh, black and white. It was um, it was really diverse. And the crowd was into it. They were raucous. They sort of, they laughed at the right things. They clapped, they cheered. And I left the movie feeling just excited about having spent three hours with some group of people who approximated a tribe that I didn't really know that I had. Um, And it was nice to hang out with them. And I think, and it got me thinking about other movies that have had that effect. And they're almost always sort of genre movies. Um, and the earliest one that I can think of is um, watching Tim Burton's Batman, which is coincidentally um, another superhero movie. But I was at the big Newport. I was probably eight or nine years old. And the big Newport had 1,200 seats. It's just massive. It was a massive, massive theater. And when it packed out, it felt like the whole world was there. And I had that feeling that watching this movie this week. Um, I felt like kind of, I mean, 1.2 billion, maybe the whole world was there. And in, in a very real way, like the international box office of this movie is is staggering how much money it's making to think about. This is not just an American phenomenon. This is a, like a worldwide phenomenon where they're putting uh, they're putting butts in theaters all over the world right now. And to feel like there was a whole group of people who were watching it sort of simultaneously. I don't know that that felt strangely holy to me. It's the it's the same it's the same kind of feeling that I have when I think critically about the electionary and its value, which is like, Hey, churches all over the world are talking about this particular scripture passage. And so that was cool to me. I, um, the experience was super satisfying. The story I I'm interested, Matt, like as you watched it and you experienced it, what, what part of the story was lingering with you and, and what part of it, um, you is it is still resonating so for a variety of reasons of my own schedule i ended up at an eight o'clock in the morning screening of this friday morning it was the moment (laughs) that i could go and and here in austin i mean that screening was just as sold out as everything else in town i mean i bought those tickets six weeks ago when they went on sale and i was one of the last ones that morning to get a seat for this show 
Uh, I was sitting next to a couple that had ordered, because I'm at the Alamo Draft House, so you can kind of order whatever you want. There's all kinds of food and drink service. And the couple next to me had ordered a carafe of orange juice and a chilled glass of, bottle of champagne. So they're just sitting there having, like, <laughs> off-day mimosas while they watch the Avengers movie. And I, I thought, those I folks... I watched this movie all wrong. Yeah, yeah. Those folks were doing that movie really well. The, the, the screening I was at, the, the moment that we most reacted to in the theater audibly... Uh, and was one of the kind of high emotional moments for me in the film was the moment when uh, when Captain America wields the hammer, and when yeah. when the hammer first comes into his hand and the screen just erupted, and and I think for me that actually will be one of my favorite moments from that film going forward. Uh, simply not so much because Captain has now proved his valor and we, we saw way back in the opening of Avengers Age of Ultron as they're sitting around Tony's apartment kind of competing over who's the most powerful or whatever that you see uh, Cap try to lift the hammer and maybe it nudges just a little bit and that moment kind of lingered through pop culture and now 75 movies later shows up at this critical moment uh, and it shows up not with all of the kind of uh, competitive jockeying that happens in that an age of Ultron, but here it shows up and Thor, who could, who would have five movies ago been um, deflated by that, that anyone else could wield his magic weapon, Thor just is exuberant. And there's something really mm. beautiful about that moment of solidarity for me that traces how far these characters have come and how the relationships have grown and built and how they have become more heroic versions of themselves uh, in ways that I found really meaningful. Uh, the other lingering thing for me about this film is going to be just the first hour and and the way in which it is so comfortable sitting in the trauma of the after effects of of the events of infinity war that we see we see support group meetings we see this huge public display a memorial to the disappeared uh, we the movie puts an incredible amount of dramatic weight on the work of Paul Rudd as Ant-Man who then like wakes up from his his time in quantum realm and has to walk through the empty streets going, what the hell just happened? And it, it actually, he has to sell that really well. And I thought he did. And I, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued and kind of impressed with the way that the franchise as a whole has managed to be a franchise that keeps incorporating its own grief and its own trauma as it builds that the events of New York at the end of the Avengers matter uh, the events of Age of Ultron have mattered. These things have had consequence. And th the events here now seem to be the biggest play there. We've had five years where half of the world was gone and now have come back. And we're going we're gonna to let that stay. We're not erasing it from time. We, we're going to let that stay and be a franchise that has this huge gaping wound at the heart of it. And I'm, I'm really intrigued with how that continues to play into whatever, whatever these movies become. Eric, how about you? What, what themes lingered for you as you watched it? I think uh, <clears throat> when I think about a, a, a mature again, so you don't have me clear in my throat, <clears throat> I think the scene that will linger with me most happened right at the beginning, kind of going along Matt's line about that first hour 
the heroes assemble and they're going to go defeat Thanos. And they do so relatively easily, but it doesn't fix anything. Right. So Thor is able to lop his head off. But, and that's what I thought going in. I figured that's going to be the end of the movie, right? That's going to be the culmination, the defeat of Thanos. Instead, it's the first thing that happens and you're just left with a dark screen. And then five years later in the grief that, that Matt, you were talking about. So to me, one of the themes that lingers is the kind of the deep emotionality of this movie, mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. feelings matter deeply. Yeah. There's a ton of explosions going on in the theater and the sound is reverberating, but what matters most, uh, fundamentally, even to us, even when we're being entertained is I think deeply emotional. It's deeply about feeling. Um, and as I said earlier, I was struck by how many sobs and tears I heard, especially near the end of the movie about, uh, in this theater. So I think, uh, emotion is one that, that lingers with me, which is not, I think something we often associate with these big Hollywood blockbusters. Second, of course, is the theme of death, which is prevalent there. You know, we have it in Thanos's own name. One thing I've been thinking about is how arbitrary the snap was originally, right? That, um, Thanos isn't controlling who lives and who dies. He doesn't choose, um, who, who, who gets fades into dust. And maybe you should have made better choices with that instead of leaving all these great superheroes around. Uh, but I'm struck that death so often feels like that. That death feels arbitrary and random. Um, and maybe that's part of the mystery of death that the movie is wrestling with and that we wrestle with with faith. And last is, of course, the theme of hope, right? I mean, like the movie um, ends in this note of hope, but it's it's a costly hope in the uh, in the MCU. I think maybe go, that goes back to the emotions that we've been we've been talking about that hope isn't cheap or free in this world. It costs something. It costs five years of grief and it costs the life of Tony Stark, but there's physical costs, there's emotional costs, but I'm also struck that in the end, hope turns, it turns out hope isn't arbitrary that Tony Stark's snap at the end, spoiler alert is not arbitrary, but it's specific. It's not randomly killing half of the people in the universe it's bringing back a specific group of people and I'm just struck by the, the juxtaposition of those two snaps. Mm-hmm. What about you, Adam? What, what is lingering for you? What kind of stuff uh, jumped out for you? There are two characters at the center of this movie that are supposed to really sort of carry the emotional weight and, um, and they get, they get the longest uh, ends, right? So this is a, this is a Tony Stark movie and this is a Captain America movie primarily. Now there are all sorts, I mean, there's probably another 20 characters who get, who get their story told and then another 50 to a hundred that show up eventually. Um, but at the heart you see these two men and they're, they were the sort of beginning of the MCU and really they're fading them out because the story is going to move on to different people. And, uh, and what I, was struck by recently in watching this is that it doesn't feel like an Iron Man movie. It feels like a Tony Stark movie. He like barely wears the suit the entire movie. And instead we see him wrestling with, you know, what does happiness look like? What does fulfillment look like? How, um, how do we cope with loss? Um, how do we paper over the coping that we do with other, um, with other blessings? And how does it, how do those blessings distract us? There's, I, I found Robert Downey Jr.'s performance in this really well done in part because he didn't have to do a lot of action. He had to do a lot of acting like, and, um, and I think he and Paul Rudd are probably the best actors in the movie. 
Hmm. Uh, but so he's at the center of it. And similarly with Captain America, it, you know, there's this sort of emotional weight of having not saved the world, but also having a longing to go back to a time where he felt loved and understood and known. And both he and Tony in some ways get the fulfillment of some of their deepest desires. Um, Tony truly does want to save things um, for as sort of egotistical and self-absorbed as he's portrayed to be at the very heart of him is this protector and this, um, this sense of agency and duty on behalf of people who aren't as smart and aren't as strong. Uh, and similarly with Captain America. So I, I like how those two, those two characters were portrayed. That said, I think the emotional resonance for me was, was mainly around Thor in this movie. Mm-hmm. And he gets played for a lot of laughs because he's fat Thor, which is hilarious and funny. Um, but he is, he seems to be wrestling most acutely with his inadequacies and his insecurities. Um, you know, there's that line in infinity war where Thanos tells him you should have gone for the head. Um, and he does eventually. And in the scene that you reference, Eric, he, he chops Thanos head off, but it doesn't bring him what he wants. It doesn't, the revenge doesn't actually um, solve anything. And it sort of spirals him into some self-destructive behavior. And then he has a couple of really lovely moments. Um, and the one that struck out, stood out to me that I'm still just kind of thinking about is this, this strange moment where he goes back in time and sits down with his mother. Now, mothers don't show up in the Marvel universe very much. Um, there's, I mean, Peter Parker has a mother figure. Uh, I'm trying to think of like, like maternal figures are kind of absent. It strikes me that Tony is more maternal than, than Pops ever is with, with their daughter, at least on screen when we actually ever see um, a scenes between a parent and a child. It's between Tony and his daughter, not the other way around. Yeah. Not with his mother. Yeah. And so to have Renee Russo come in and, and play that scene, and she, you know, she gets three to four minutes of screen time. It's such a tender moment of sort of pastoral care of, of Thor finally being seen and understood. And, um, and she absolves so much in such a short amount of time. And I, I just, I, that, that scene has really lingered with me, uh, among the, the final battle, right? So let's talk about the final battle for a second. I want to hear what your sense of it was, because I, number one, the final battle gathers everyone from the universe and it's much later than I thought it would be. I thought we would see Spider-Man and Dr. Strange and, all, and, um, and T'Challa an hour, hour and a half into the movie. Um, we're almost two hours and 15 minutes before they arrive. Um, which is an interesting choice, I think, um, by the filmmakers. But when they do show up, hold on. <clears throat> but when they do show up, um, they show up in this massive force. And it, it led me to think about a little about what you were talking about earlier with respect to death, Eric, is I think the best line in the movie is when Thanos says, I am inevitable. It's 
so chilling and it's so real and honest yeah. because because if if he is in some ways a cipher for death, he is inevitable. But it to watch everybody show up to meet death, it also felt like oh this is this is what we can be as a church. We can be as inevitable as death, like to come and show up in the midst of death or to combat death, to, to marshal all of our forces in order to meet this inevitable force with another inevitable force of goodness that comes out of our mission. Um, that, that sort of, that really sort of struck me. And I was, I was sat there in awe watching everybody show up through these portals in order to, to do battle against inevitability. What I love about that scene is that it takes 22 movies to build that up, right? All these movies to get to the moment where it's significant that all these different characters show up. And I think you're right about this kind of imagination about us taking up arms against death. And I wonder if one piece of that, too, is that even as we're taking up arms against death, we know that it comes at a great cost. And I'm wondering when when Dr. Strange, you know, um, gestures to Tony telling him it's, you know, it's, this is the one, the one possibility. If somehow that also communicates to Tony that it's going to cost him something pretty precious. It's going to cost him his life. It's going to cost him seeing his daughter grow up, but, but that it's worth it for the sake of everybody else. Um, it also makes me think, um, you know, the stories of resurrection in the gospels, say of Lazarus or the, or the little girl whose, whose father is a, um, a temple official or a, a synagogue official. And we all know they all died again, right? So right. even in the victory over death, death is in a way, it still remains inevitable, even as we fight it all the way down to the end, even as we declare on Easter morning, right, that death has been defeated once and for all. So I think it's, it's that tension that I, that I, I kind of ca- felt caught up with during that, that final fight scene as well. Adam, you mentioned before from that middle act where uh, in the course of this kind of time travel heist that the Avengers go on, that Thor ends up in the events of Thor 2, The Dark World, talking to his mother, (laughs) Rene Russo. I think a a bold choice on behalf of the franchise as a whole to kind of require some basic knowledge of the least seen movie in the in the whole MCU <laughs> here at the heart of of the big tent pole. I, I want to hear y'all think a little bit about how this center arc time heist piece worked for you. I mean, time travel was heavily speculated to be the one of the plot devices that would show up here in order to help us undo the snap. Um, did this did this sequence uh, work and and how did it inform your, your broader senses about some of the thematic work in the film? You know, one thing that I was struck by was that they, within the world of the movie, they're already nodding at us. They're winking at us about the impossibilities of time travel and all the complications, they, you know, all the allusions to Back to the Future, which I really enjoyed. So I think because the movie knows it, it takes it both seriously, but also with an edge of humor, an edge of knowing that we've done this before. It, um, for some reason, that worked for me. That 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 kind of saved the possibilities of it because it it maintains the our credulity credulity in the midst of the movie. Um, I was struck with the time travel piece is that it's it's a continuity of identity too, right? So even in the midst of all this, say with Nebula and Gamora. Fundamentally, even in the jumping around around time, it's about who they really are and whose side they're really on. Um, 
that even again, even if you're jumping back and forth in time, it's these questions of identity that linger even amidst all this. Yeah, I think similarly, you know, this movie is very self-reflexive and I think you can, it opens the movie up to being um, critiqued as self-absorbed. Like Mm -hmm. this is the the Borg that assimilates all movies and all of the film industry into it. That said, I think it served to give a, like a really appropriate contrast to how far they've come uh, to what you were talking about late earlier, Matt, like, like we saw these characters in, in 2013 or in these other previous iterations, um, and they've changed, which is not something that we usually talk about with respect to superheroes. It was like we, you know, that they have had that this wealth of experience, that this trauma, that this, um, that the work that they've done has changed them in pretty dramatic ways. And especially someone like Captain America, who we see as sort of as solid, as unmoving, as like noble in a way that is kind of shallow. And I think by putting them back in different environments where we could see some of that contrast, I I really appreciated that, you know, like to have Captain America annoyed at his earlier self for being so righteous was interesting to me. I thought that was a, a fun filmmaking decision. Um, I try not to think too much about time travel. <laughs> you know, I, I understand that it's, it's, yeah, it's a plot device that's needed. And, um, you know, I, there's a, there's a large green um, man who's also uh, a, like a monster who's also there. And I, you know, best not to overthink these things and just let the movie <laughs> take you where it's going to take you. <laughs> that said, it, it, it allowed the movie to fold back on in itself, which was, I think a fun direction for the movie to go. What about you? I mean, you see that, that middle, that middle time heist, uh, act is, it takes you a lot of different places, right? I mean, there's three different movies four even, and then we move even further back into, the army base in the, in the sixties. Yeah. I thought the army base was the most interesting part of that because it was new territory. There was something about the other pieces going to the, going to the battle of New York, going to the opening of guardians to meet Peter Quill for the first time, going to the bits from um, dark world. Uh, There was something about that, that that worked and also felt a little bit clip showy to me. Like Here's here here in the last movie we're going to take a little bit just to kind of like here's some of our best <laughs> moments and they and and they and they and they 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 play yeah. the highlight reel a little bit and then there's here's the here's the narrative device that lets us go and visit the highlight reel and that of course is undercut by the fact that they include dark world which is clearly not going to make anyone's highlight reel it it did feel a little bit pastiche to me and I also enjoyed it and I and as I said I particularly enjoyed the the movement back to the army base previously because it lets us see these characters uh, reconciling with their past in some really interesting ways. It lets us kind of prod some new ground as well. I thought that moment worked particularly well. I liked I liked the Hawkeye and Black Widow part too. I thought um, that was an interesting scene for two characters that I I don't have a lot of investment in. The character for me that got least well served among those central Avengers characters was Hulk. Mm. Uh, I'm I was a little frustrated that he shows up at the beginning of this movie, or at least after the five year jump, that he shows up as a fully formed Professor Hulk 
and we never get to see that transformation on screen. Kind of famously, instead of getting his own standalone film, he's supposed to have gotten this character arc that began with Thor Ragnarok and continued in Infinity War. And famously in Infinity War, he can't Mm -hmm. transform into Hulk when he needs to. There's this, like, it's like the Banner and Hulk are warring at each other and Hulk won't come out. And then in that five-year gap, he fixes all of this and shows up at the beginning of, <laughs> right. of Endgame fully realized. And I, as much as I enjoyed the character he becomes, mm-hmm. I felt like they had taken away the, the nexus of that arc from me, and I wanted to see it. I, for a three-hour and 45-minute and six-day-long movie, I wanted something more right there. I needed, I needed ten more minutes mm-hmm. where we get to see Hulk before and after and kind of the moment where he brings it together. Yeah. Especially, especially since, you know, I think what they're trying to do is they're, they're recognizing that this grief from the snap has, has affected people differently. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's worth considering in the, in the stories of Tony and of the Hulk that the events of the snap actually have been, uh, well, tragic and terrible, have been important moments to reassess and rethink their lives. Yeah. And they've actually done really good work as opposed to like Black Widow, who still sits at the Avengers HQ, like eating sandwiches and seems to be sort of like wholly consumed by the past. These Mm -hmm. two have moved on in a way that seems quite healthy. And they didn't, they didn't do, they did more of the trauma brooding. What are we going to do? than trying to help people recognize that there are like redemptive paths that come out of trauma. Yeah. But, but Tony's path is totally consistent with character work he'd already done on screen. Yeah. I mean, we, and, 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 and Hawks is not, and that's where, that's where I got a little bit. I just felt a little disappointed in that part. So let me, let me open this up just a little bit and ask, you know, we've talked this movie from a number of different angles. Y'all are both in ministries of different sorts in the church and the academy. Can you imagine a context in which you would use this? What does using this in your ministry look like? I can think of a couple of things. One, I think, I wonder if, especially that last part of the movie might give us a different kind of imagination about what the apocalyptic literature of the New Testament is trying to do for us in community, how it's trying to form us. So often I think, because we've been shaped by, left behind, and and, and really bad theology like that, that we imagine that apocalyptic is a sketch for the future. But what if apocalyptic is this imaginative space where we play out what it looks like to contest the powers of the world, to contest over life and death, to contest over what really matters. And I think that, that it's, it's more about the feeling that it evokes in us. So what happens when everybody shows up to, to fight death? Maybe that's what apocalyptic is like. It's trying to nurture that sensibility, that feeling not at a big climactic battle, but in the everyday ba- battles and struggles of life, right? That uh, maybe apocalyptic is helping us to clarify what God is up to today, not what is God, what God is going to do tomorrow. And maybe that feeling we had of that collective feeling of, of hope, but also of grief is more like apocalyptic than it is, you know, a Kirk Cameron movie. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me too. I mean, especially since, that scene it, at one point it is earth that they're on, yep. but by the end of it, it's unrecognizable as yeah. earth. 
And it seems like it's a totally different space, right? It looks like they're on a foreign planet again. Um, and I, I like that in, in that moment, the, the apocalypse is being fought in a new realm while also being the same realm. And I think that, that was a nice set decision. I think for me, Matt, um, I, I want to talk, I, the Hawkeye and Black Widow scene has some interesting, um, thematic thing or theological and thematic ideas that I think are worth considering. Uh, the, the, I love the idea that they're, they're far removed from everything, right? And they know that something, that some measure of sacrifice is going to be needed, though there's no assurance that this sacrifice is actually going to give them, it'll give them a piece of what they need, but they need all of these other people to also succeed in order for them to, uh, to, to have their success matter. And so to watch them try and sort of outdo themselves in sacrifice was pretty moving. Uh, but moreover, I think for me, it was, it was helpful to consider how we, even these sacrifices that we might give, we, we actually don't know what the long-term consequences are going to be. And that's totally scary. It's like utterly frightening, but courage is to, uh, is, is, to assume or at least to believe or have faith in the idea that this sacrifice will eventually matter, that it, it will not be in vain. And, um, and the lack of vanity in that moment, uh, really spoke to me. And I, I, that's something that I could see talking about with, with, with a church or with a, a youth group or with somebody when we're talking about what is, what does sacrifice look like and why do we do it? Um, whether it's efficacious or not. And and I think the other piece for me related to that is thinking this weekend, thinking about this movie at the same time as seeing the news about the shooting at the, at a synagogue in in Poway, California. So the, the one woman who was killed was Lori Gilbert Kay. And as um, the rabbi of the synagogue tells the story is that she stood between him and, and the bullets and helped save his life. So, it's, it's, it's this extraordinary act of bravery, and I think it's drawing a lot of attention, and for good reason. What's striking, of course, is that she wasn't wearing a suit, you know, like she didn't have any superpowers. Um, it was just the raw humanity of standing in for someone else's life, the raw humanity of doing something for the sake of someone else, the raw humanity of, of, of taking a sacrificial step without knowing how it would turn out, if it would make a difference. So I wonder if, you know, it's, if, Again, these superhero movies might help us see the heroic and kind of more ordinary everyday ways. So we don't have to look for people in, um, with awesome powers to do this work. It's, it's the awesome power of ordinary, ordinariness that is perhaps most heroic in our midst. I think for me, the, the other thing to add would be that there's a way to use this film to talk about vocation, particularly running through Thor's character. Uh, particularly at the end where he talks about how he is done trying to be the thing that he's supposed to be and is going to go be the thing that he is. And, and you see him wrestle with this whole time, through this whole franchise, the the weight of 
um, his responsibility to Asgard, the weight that has been passed down to him, and the way in which that both challenges him and lifts him up and also burdens him. And I, I think we could use that moment to think with a little bit of nuance about uh, who we are called to be and what is the distinction between talking about who we are called to be and who God has made us, how God has made us in the first mm. place. Mm. I think that's, it's not clean and it's not meant to be clean. And I, I I'm, don't think it's an easy thesis, but I think there will be a, mo- a way to use that moment to talk about, to, to try to get at vocation in a little bit of a more textured way. I think that's a good place to move on. But before we do, let me say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. I published a re- an article recently on food and cooking and preaching. Uh, we'll put a link for it up on the show page, but you should go read it because I liked writing it and I think it's pretty good. Uh, also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, Eric, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We are looking at the lectionary passages for this coming Sunday, May 5th, the third Sunday of Easter. We have two important narratives, the conversion of Saul and also Peter and Jesus on the seashore. We are also offered Psalm 30 and the assembly praising God in Revelation 5. Eric, as you look through these texts, what jumps out to you inspired by Avengers Endgame? Well, I think our conversation wants me to go to Revelation first, thinking about this apocalyptic vision. One thing I'm always struck by with this particular pericope is that John is quite good at counting otherwise, right? He can count to 144,000. <laughs> he can count all these things. But all of a sudden, when it comes to the saints gathered worshiping God, his arithmetic skills kind of, or his counting skills all of a sudden go away. That there is this kind of overwhelming number that's beyond count, that's beyond accounting for. Um, and I wonder again if what's important about this this picture in Revelation is, is not the details, but the kind of emotional weight that it carries, this emotional weight of imagining uh, generations and generations and thousands and thousands of Jesus followers together worshiping God in, in one voice. So that's but that's the image, that's the picture that's supposed to carry us from week to week in an apocalyptic imagination, not, you know, calculations about the end of the world. Um, so I think that's one place to start. The other place is to think about this, the act story. The, I think it's important to talk about it being the calling of, of Saul, right? That it's, it's less him shifting from one shape of faithfulness to another, and instead it's a call into a different kind of life, into a different kind of vocation. And it's it's striking to me to to see in Acts the enemy being turned into kin, and it's hard to imagine what that would look like, say, with, with Thanos. Can is can we imagine any way that Thanos has a Damascus Road experience all of a sudden becomes an Avenger, or does the movie set out these these sides so sharply that we can't imagine them crossing over? Um, so those are two places at least to start thinking about the connections. I mean, the the Saul conversion story doesn't feel like Thanos to me. It feels like Tony Stark. It feels like yeah, Tony Stark yeah. circa Iron Man 1. Like, oh, literally, nice. on, on, in, in the in the Humvee, going down the desert road with the scotch on the rocks and his, sure. in, in, in his hands. 
and yeah. you know the the blinding light of the explosion, and then he oh, wow. eventually he wakes up as someone else. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I think I think you could easily do Saul on the Road to Damascus through the lens of of two thousand eight Tony Stark. Maybe not so much through Infinity War. Much better connection, and that he needs people who will see beyond who he was in order to become who he can, who he can become. So it's much better connection. But, but that said, I think I think that there's something to be mined here, especially because the the genre requires um, good and evil, white hats, black hats. I mean it. And the reason that we know that evil has won is because I mean that that good has won is because evil has been vanquished, right? So Tony Snark's snap, you know, is a snap where the the bad guys are turned to dust, and we think, oh, that's that's as it should be, you know. They've, but I I like this idea of what would it take to not not vanquish Thanos but redeem him. And this Easter season has been an interesting one as I as I think about what actually happens in the resurrection and what is the sort of efficaciousness of the empty tomb and also the cross. And, you know, the tradition has talked so much about the victory and about how death is defeated and how death is, is, is destroyed or death dies or something like that. And then again, I, you know, I read these gospels and Jesus keeps saying these things like, you know, like you have to die in order to live. And, and it's been reorienting my picture lately to stop thinking about death as something that we defeat, but something that Christ redeems that. And I'm still trying to figure out what that actually means. And like, what does that mean for our lives? And what does that mean for our theologies? But with respect to the the conversion of Saul, there is something where like this person who is initially set up as an enemy is, is changed and and the identity shifts and the calling shifts to place him into new relationship both with the early church community but also with god and um and that's a, a sort of redemption it's not a sort of like it's not a dying or it's a it's a reliving i don't know i'm i'm still trying to figure this out and this is a conversation that we have regularly whenever we talk about these superhero movies and their sort of just assumption of the value of redemptive violence. So what about you, Matt, as you look at this, what, what's standing out to you? Well, I'm, I'm still thinking about this thing about vocation in these films and I'm looking at the, uh, the John text with the kind of famous, I tell you when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. And when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. Terrifying. Right. And I think about like, okay, we have, we have Thor's vocational arc, which is the opposite of this, which is for so long, he has been led around by the, the kind of imperial, the, the kind of monarchic demands of Asgard and the way in which his identity as son of Odin forces him into certain kinds of actions. And at the end of this movie, he is just, he's totally um, dismissed all of that. He's going to go self-determine. I, I wonder if Tony's arc is the opposite where the, the Tony Stark that we meet in the beginning of this franchise is entirely self, is so entirely self-determined and is so determined and is so, um, charismatic about that kind of self-made man mythology and as as it moves through time it becomes for him more and more about 
um, something about inevitability, something about the, the sacrifice that he is bound to make and that the, the opening of Endgame that finds him five years later having self-determined into this family and into this um, beautiful relationship is, is still can't quite be the full story because there is something that is leading him where he doesn't want to go. And I think there's a way to play with that a little bit and the terror of it and potentially the, the kind of meaning and, and value of it as well. You know, I think with, with the John scene, one thing that I've been thinking about in this, in these Easter scenes, uh, these scenes after the resurrection is how often the disciples keep being surprised by Jesus showing up. Um, this is, you know, John notes that it's his, this is Jesus third appearance. The disciples still seem to be surprised. He keeps showing up. It's as if, the trauma of the cross keeps overcoming mm-hmm. what they had just seen with their eyes and touched with their hands. The trauma just is so overwhelming. Uh, what they'd experienced was so painful that it can't seem to overcome what well, it keeps overcoming what they're actually experiencing in, in these encounters with Jesus. Um, so I'm just struck how hard it is for these disciples to recognize the resurrected Jesus in their midst. And maybe that's instructive for us too, that it's, um, Again, really hard for us to see resurrection in our midst when we become so much more familiar with death, with illness, with loss. Um, and I'm struck both in John and also in the Gospel of Luke, the importance of, of food for for making Jesus um, that much more present to, to, to the disciples. It's something kind of ordinary and earthy and everyday about eating together, about belonging together, about the table that brings people together. <clears throat> and it makes me think back, again, to seen a couple of articles r- remarking that some of the power of this latest Avengers movie is that they took the best parts of the movie and gave it to us over and over again. That part where they're just sitting together and talking, it's less the action and more about what happens when these friends, these coworkers, whatever you want to call them are having to talk out what they're facing, what they're going to do. So maybe there's something about um, food and belonging and the kind of conversations that happen over tables. That's, that's really important for us to recognize the shape of resurrection. Yeah, that's right. That John passage is so, uh, it's so rich. I, I think in addition to what you both talked about, there's that moment between Jesus and Peter where Jesus is giving Peter some new identity, some new vocational yeah. role, right? Like he's, he's out been fishing. He knows how to fish, but now he's asking him to become a shepherd and um, says over and over again, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And, um, and I was struck by the end of the movie where like new mantles are being given, whether it's Thor sort of trying to figure out who he is outside of Asgard or whether it's Sam who Captain America gives his shield to. And he's now going to become Captain America. And what does that mean? And um, yeah. and I, I quite liked that the, that the universe itself, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that is, has um, – has repositioned people with slightly new identities. And now we get to see what is, what does Captain America look like when Sam is Captain America, as opposed to um, Steve Rogers. Yeah. And too, um, it makes me think I've always assumed that Peter was just being dense in this whole conversation with Jesus and, you know, thinking about, the horror's redemption in the midst of all this and coming back to, to his own sense of identity. Maybe he's not, maybe Peter's not being dense. He's just needs someone to talk him through this, to invest mm-hmm. the kind of hope, the kind of 
expectation that, that Jesus imbues in Peter, too. That Jesus can see something in Peter that Peter can't see himself because of all that he's gone through. And Peter just needs a lot of help. Yeah, right. Which is, uh, yeah, which is instructive for all of us who need a lot of help. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Fair enough. I think that's a good place to end. Uh, as we move on to our last segment, we want to thank Eric for coming on for, for, um, for so graciously and sacrificially going to see this movie <laughs> so that he could be on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I wouldn't have gone to you know, unless you I was asked a, me to. <laughs> I know. I know. We know that that's what if this is something that you would have, you know, taken a wide berth to steer clear of. But um, but thanks for being with us. We're, uh, we always enjoy having you on and hopefully you'll come on again soon. I'd be happy to, guys. This was a blast. And uh, thanks for all you do. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Eric. All right. It is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for this week? So it's not surprising to anyone who is at all plugged into the pop culture landscape that this weekend was pretty monumental from a variety of different standpoints. And for me, this felt like the weekend that pop culture consumed my life. <laughs> so on <laughs> on Friday night, I went to Avengers Endgame and spent three hours there. Um, on Saturday, I started watching the second round of the NBA playoffs. And on Sunday, again, watched uh, the Houston Rockets and the Golden State Warriors, which feels itself like a kind of apocalyptic battle. <laughs> um, and then stayed up well into the night, having watched uh, the, of Win- the Battle of Winterfell, the, um, the newest episode of Game of Thrones, which, you know, pits um, basically the whole game of thrones cast against um an undead army and um i can't sustain this level of pop culture um experience but i felt like i felt like i was probably 18 again when i would do these types of things more regularly where i would just park myself instead of in front of a glowing screen and um and just consume as like just totally drink from the fire hose and yeah. it was awesome. I had <laughs> so much. It was it was one of the funnest weekends that I've had in a long time. And um, and part of what makes it so fun to me is uh, this morning I'm having a conversation with you and Eric, but I'm also reading what other people are saying about Endgame. But I'm also reading what they're saying about um, the playoffs, and I'm also reading what they're saying about um, Game of Thrones. Um, and it just is fun to be a part of those conversations again. I think we, we don't really have these sort of uh, these major cultural events any longer, save for sports and uh, a, a few movies and maybe one show any longer. And yeah. that they all converged on one weekend where I can be a part of so many of different conversations facilitated by the internet and by podcasts yeah. and by conversations with friends. It just, it was a reiteration of how much I, why I love these stories. And, and it's not just because I love the stories. It's because I love talking about the stories with other people. And so I just commend pop culture just as a practice and as a pursuit in part, not just because the stories are creative and interesting, but also because they are community building and they give you an opportunity to be in conversation with people 
um, who you don't know or who you do know to talk about something that you both care about. So I, you know, thanks to you, Matt, for constantly having these conversations with me, but you know, I'm excited (laughs) to have continuing to have conversations over the course of the day with other folks, um, who I know and who I don't know. Yeah. I did not stay up that late watching game of Thrones last night. I stayed up that late talking about game of Thrones after I had watched it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like Game of Thrones itself, especially as I'm in the central time zone, like if I had gone to bed after the episode was over, this would all be fine. But I could not do that. There had to be like three hours of processing afterwards. So uh, I I feel your pain substantially and the joy of it. Uh, Spoiler free thoughts on Game of Thrones season eight, episode three. Um. Spoiler-free thoughts. I thought that this. I thought that the show was more uh, was less ruthless than it has been in the past. Right. Um, I was. I. I. I shouted for joy at particular points. Yeah. Um, and I was overwhelmed by the spectacle of it all, mm-hmm. which was really exciting. I mean, it was like between the spectacle of Avengers and the spectacle of Game of Thrones, you know, that's almost five and a half hours of, of, of a lot of filmmaking that is pretty radical and amazing um, and and magical in its own way. So um, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens going forward. I I thought that there would be less loose ends to tie up, but here we are. All right. Well, next weekend, after you've gotten all the pop culture out of your veins this weekend, next weekend, <laughs> next Saturday is uh, is Free Comic Book Day. I don't want to talk about Free Comic Book Day for a second. So, so Free Comic Book Day means it's very, very simple, Adam. You can go to your local comic book store and they will hand you free comic books. That is, that is the whole thing. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I've now explained it from from beginning to end. You go to your local comic book store. You might have to go a little early in the day, depending on how big your store is and how many fans it has locally. And and there will be a selection of free comic books that have been printed particularly for the occasion of free comic book day, and you can take them. Sometimes they'll just hand you a bag that already has a set made. Sometimes you kind of walk through a thing and pick up the ones that you want. There's an interesting phenomenon with free comic book day where I feel like people don't entirely grasp that there are free comic books. Like it feels like a more <laughs> it feels like a more risky thing than it actually is. Like if I go to free comic book day, am I going to become like a person who is obsessed with comic books? Am I going to become some stereotype comic book guy like the guy from the Simpsons episodes? Like am I going to fall into some vortex where all I do is think about comic book characters? And, and, I, and I, I want to acknowledge that and point out that I'm pretty sure this is the same conversation that churches have about hospitality and welcoming all the time. <laughs> right. So, yeah. like, so, like, if you come to church on a Sunday, like, we're going to give you donuts, right? You're going to get free donuts and liturgy and coffee. And, and that's it. Like, there's no strings attached to it. And, and you are not necessarily going to, like, turn into some weird... Uh, caricature of what a Christian or a worshiper or a churchgoer is supposed to be. But I think churches don't often realize that their message of welcome and hospitality still feels really risky to folks who don't know 
what it might feel like on the other side or have weird stereotypes and perceptions of what it might feel like on the other side. Yes. So go to Free Comic Book Day, not only because you get free comic books, but really, and let me reiterate this, you show up and you get free comic books, but also because I think the experience of going and just being handed free stuff at a place that is unknown to you and might feel a little bit weird to you is good learning for what it feels like for churches to exist in the world. So go to right. Free Comic Book Day next Saturday morning. Go early. That's fantastic. I might steal this for the, the welcome that I give on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really helpful it's, it, to try and constantly be empathizing with what it means to be new in a place and how yeah. dangerous and insecure that can feel. All right, Matt, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at Sunday Morning Matinee. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to Eric Barreto, our guest today. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Cheeseburgers for Tony. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.